Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. As we move from gathering to listening, our scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service, ser- her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Marsha. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. My name's Pete. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are so glad that you're with us for this second Sunday of Advent. Uh, If you were with us last week, we joined with millions of other Christians all around the world in starting another journey through the historic church calendar. And if you're not familiar with the church calendar, it's a tradition that goes way back to the earliest days of the Christian faith when uh, early, the early church began establishing annual rhythms of feasting and fasting according to the story of scripture. And uh, the idea for us is that every year, starting around the beginning of December, uh, we embark on a six-month journey together following the story of Jesus. And so that's where we're at. Uh, today is the second week of Advent, and um, Advent is really kind of like a prologue to the church year, meaning um, it's a season of preparation. It's a season of anticipation, or you could say it's a season of waiting which admittedly doesn't sound like that much fun, right? But 
here's what I love about Advent. Um, Advent is totally honest about the fact that for many of us, God's presence feels more like absence most of the time. Advent is a time to acknowledge that God doesn't feel very close in my life a lot of the times. That a lot of my prayers feel unanswered or even unheard. And that's the kind of stuff maybe you thought we're not supposed to talk about in church, (laughs) or at least not say out loud. But the reality is we have an entire season of the church calendar dedicated to that experience. Asking God, where is he? When is he going to show up? When is he going to do something? When is he going to show himself to us? That's what Advent is all about. We sing songs like, come thou long expected Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's a time of waiting, longing, asking God to come. In a couple weeks, it'll be Christmas, and we're excited about that. What's interesting is that in our culture, Christmas is a time that tends to be marked by nostalgia. It's when we think back to the good old days, whenever those were, right? Or fond memories of when we were a kid. We sing, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas just like the ones I used to know, trying to recapture something of the wonder of the past. So Christmas feels nostalgic. Advent has nothing to do with that. There's nothing sentimental or nostalgic about Advent. It's not looking backward to better days. It's looking ahead to days that are still to come. And so Advent is a time where we stand in solidarity with everyone who's ever felt the words of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? We want to see God. That's what Advent's about. So that's why we're spending these few weeks studying the words of the Old Testament Hebrew prophet of Isaiah. And Isaiah was written during a time when things had not been going well for the Israelites. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are basically God warning his people that if they continue to turn their backs on him and bow down and worship foreign gods, that judgment is coming. And then at the end of chapter 39, it basically says, the Babylonians are coming for you and it's not going to go well. And it kind of ends with that warning. And then what you have between Isaiah 39 and 40 is about a 150-year cliffhanger, right? Sometimes it's hard to wait till the next season of your show starts. This is 150 years. And we don't know all that's, went, all that's gone down in that gap, but we do know that just as God uh, promised through Isaiah that the Babylonians did come, And they invaded and took control of Jerusalem. And in this horrific scene, they took a bunch of the Israelite people back with them to Babylon, basically as prisoners of war. And so these Israelite people have been ripped from their homes and they've been living in captivity in a foreign land for the last 70 years. All of that goes down in the space between Isaiah 39 and 40. But then, all of a sudden, 
in Isaiah 40, something changes. Here's how chapter 40 begins. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. See, this is a major twist in the story. Because for 39 chapters, God has been telling Isaiah, I want you to rebuke my people, reprimand my people, warn my people. But now God tells him, comfort. I want you to comfort my people. So there's a new era now. Things have changed. What's happened is that there's a new king in Babylon and he's decided to release the captives to send the prisoners of war back to their homeland. And so after 70 years in exile, the Israelites are heading home. And God tells Isaiah, the nightmare is over. Go tell my people the good news. He goes on in verse 2 and tells Isaiah to speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so the picture of God here is really like that of a parent, a parent who has had to discipline their child and ground them to their room. And at a certain point, the parent goes to the child and says, okay, it's over. You've done your time. You've learned your lesson. You're free to go. That's what's happening in Isaiah 40. This is a message of comfort and hope that the people, these people who have been without comfort and hope for so long are finally getting some good news. And so Isaiah's telling the Israelites, God is on his way. The great rescuer is coming. So get ready because he'll be here any day. And when he comes, everything is going to change. Starting in verse 3 then, Isaiah starts to describe what that's going to look like when God shows up to rescue his people. And he uses a metaphor, and it's a surprising one. The metaphor he uses is a highway construction project in the desert, which we know all about here in Central Oregon, right? <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. I assume it's just more roundabouts, but there's always something <laughs> happening. That's the picture that Isaiah uses. He says, a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. So this is what Isaiah says it's going to be like when God shows up to rescue his people from exile. It's going to be like a massive highway construction project. I want to focus on these verses for the rest of our time because I think they paint such a powerful picture of where we find ourselves in this season of Advent. Uh, as I was thinking about this passage this week, I actually called one of my brothers to get his take. I'm uh, the oldest of four. I've got two younger brothers and a, and a younger sister. So one of my brothers is a nuclear engineer. My other brother is a construction engineer. And my sister is a hair and makeup engineer um, or something like that. <laughs> my brother Phil is the uh, construction engineer and he works on large scale infrastructure projects 
um, designing things like freeways, bridges, tunnels, that sort of thing. Um, right now, he's working on a project in Colorado where they're taking a dam and trying to raise it 130 feet higher, which would make it the tallest dam of its kind in North America. And so that's what he does. And uh, I called Phil and I read Isaiah 40 to him. And I said, this is a passage about a major highway construction project. And uh, I asked him about the place where it says, every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. And he goes, yeah, that's called a cut and fill. We do it all the time. <laughs> he goes, if you need to build a road through an area with uneven terrain, then you cut away the earth in the high places and you fill the earth in the low places. And he goes, and if your engineer knows what they're doing, then they'll design the cut and fill perfectly to where you don't have to bring in any extra material. You just work with what's already there and you even out the terrain. Okay, so that's my brother Phil's take on this. I wanna just blow your mind with my keynote skills and show you what I mean here. Um, so if you wanna build a road, <laughs> but there's a valley and a hill in your way, here's what you do. First, you figure out how much material you need to fill up the valley, okay? And then you figure out how to cut that much material out of the hill, and then you simply move the material from the hill into the valley, and now you've got yourself a road, okay? I showed this to Phil, and he's like, yeah, that's it, and I'm like, so I'm basically a construction engineer now, right? Like, it doesn't seem that hard. I don't know why you had to go to college and all that. I, uh, I've, I've got it figured out. This is what Isaiah says it's going to be like when God shows up to rescue his people. Mountains will be brought down and valleys will be raised up to make way for the coming of the Lord. Now, maybe you're sitting here going, I've never read Isaiah before, but I swear I've heard this. And you're right. In Dr. King's famous I Have a Dream speech, he described his dream for our country with six specific visions. The first is that our nation would become a place where all men and women are truly equal. The second is that the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners would sit together at the table of fellowship. The third is that the American South would be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. The fourth is that his children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. The fifth is that one day little black boys and black girls would be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. And finally, let me read to you Dr. King's sixth dream. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is so interesting. Why would Dr. King quote an ancient Hebrew prophecy about a highway construction project in a speech about racial justice? Well, 
Either Dr. King was a construction engineer, like my brother and I, or <laughs> he understood that Isaiah was using this as a picture for something else. So what's going on here? What did MLK know that we don't? If we only look at the words of Isaiah 40 on their own, we can learn a lot about the meaning. But the incredible gift that God has given us in the scriptures is that it is an endlessly self-referential set of writings. What I mean is that the Bible is constantly quoting itself, referencing itself, connecting one part to another part so we can understand what's going on at the macro level. Let me show you this graphic. I just love this. It's made, made by a guy named Chris Harrison, who's a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University. And what this shows is all the cross-references in the Bible. So at the bottom, the bar graph shows in gray and white all the books of the Bible. All the individual lines show the chapters of the Bible. The longest line that you can see there in the middle is Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. And then all the curved lines over the top, each one of them represents a cross-reference between two chapters in the Bible. And they're color-coded based on the distance of the reference. So the shorter ones are down low, and the longer references are up high. So how many curved lines do you think there are? 63,779. So if you have one of those big study Bibles, then you can see this in the text, in the footnotes or the margins, where it tells you this verse is a reference to that verse, which is a reference to that verse. This is just his way of showing this in a visual way. And this is why the Bible has been called the first hyperlinked book, right? It's like when you look at something on Wikipedia and you find all these blue words that you click on them and it takes you to another article where you can learn more about the same thing. Reading the Bible works the exact same way. Every chapter that you read is full of references or hyperlinks to other chapters, other places where the same words, phrases, ideas are used. And so that means that there's some prophecies and promises that happen really early in the story, and they're hyperlinked to events that are going to happen much later, and vice versa. So when it comes to Isaiah 40, not only do we need to understand it within its own genre and setting and context, but it's also a chapter that's full of hyperlinks. And one of those takes us to an event that happens about 700 years later. And so we'll jump ahead in the story from Isaiah 40 to Luke 3. And here's where it takes us. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness... Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, and the rough way is smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> 
So when Luke is writing his gospel account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he makes sure to include a note to his reader, letting them know that this is a hyperlinked text to something that happened long ago. And what we find is that Luke's words here are referencing back, or, or I'm sorry, what we find here is that these words are spoken in Isaiah, referencing forward to a guy known as John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is one of the most interesting and unique characters in the entire biblical story. Very, very strange guy. In today's language, we might call him neurodivergent um, or something like that. If you're ever looking at Christian icons, you can tell that you're looking at John the Baptist by the fact that he's always got messy, crazy hair, and he's usually holding his own head, okay? So that kind of gives you a picture of John the Baptist. I wish we could talk about him more. But what's interesting about him is that John is really, even though his story takes place in the New Testament, he's really the last of the Old Testament prophets. He came before Jesus. And he shows up as a forerunner to prepare the way of the Lord. And so when he shows up in Luke's gospel, he's hyperlinked to the voice of one calling in the wilderness from Isaiah 40. So what's this voice calling for? Well, in a word, John's message is repentance. He's calling on people everywhere to repent. And he's warning them that if they don't make some serious changes, that things are going to go badly for them in the near future. He's not threatening them. He's warning them. God is coming, so get ready. And Luke uses this metaphor from Isaiah 40, the mountains being made low and the valleys being raised up, to describe what it's going to be like when God comes. And so what we find here is that this is where Dr. King got his interpretation of Isaiah 40 by looking at how it's referenced in Luke 3. That the highway construction project is a picture of justice. When the Bible talks about justice, it's talking about the way things are supposed to be. It's talking about the world made right. And so when Isaiah tells the Israelites who have been living in exile that every hill would be brought down and every valley would be raised up, he's talking to a group of people who have been living down in the valley of society for the last 70 years as an oppressed people. Their position has been the lowest of the low. The Israelites have been down here the Babylonians have been up here, and God says, that's not how things are supposed to be. And so Isaiah says, God's excavator of justice is coming. The high will be brought down, the low will be raised up. And then when Dr. King told the crowds that one day every hill would be brought down and every valley would be filled, he was also talking to a group of people who had been living down in the valleys of society. He was confronting the evils of systemic racism that had oppressed people of color in our country for hundreds of years, from slavery to segregation. And like the prophets before him, Dr. King brings comfort to the people by reminding them that God's excavator of justice is coming. 
the high will be brought down and the low will be lifted up. When you go to seminary, one of the first things you learn in preaching 101 is that a good sermon comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. That's what Isaiah is doing. That's what Dr. King is doing. That's what John the Baptist is doing. When God shows up, those who are enjoying life up in the hills, the comfortable will experience it as affliction. Those who are afflicted down in the valleys will experience it as comfort. Okay, so as I talk about all this stuff, the highs being brought down and the lows being brought up, some of you are hearing this as, oh, that sounds really nice. We can all just get along and share. Others of you are going, this sounds really radical and really political. Like, are you actually telling me that John the Baptist is really John the Socialist? Is that what this is about? Um, I want you to know that what John is talking about here is definitely radical and definitely political in nature, but not in any of the ways that we tend to think about this stuff. See, if God's vision of justice is that the higher brought down and the lower brought up, then one of the questions that we might ask as the people of God is what's the role of the government in trying to implement God's kingdom on earth? That's what all the debate and drama happening around Christian nationalism is all about. John doesn't care about any of that. In verse 10, the people that are hearing him say, what shall we do then? John has just said, the mountains are going to go down, the valleys are going to come up, and the people go, well, what should we do? And when the crowd asks John the Baptist what should they do, he doesn't tell them which candidate they should vote for or which bills they should pass. He doesn't tell them that the Roman government should really be taxing the rich more and taking better care of the poor. Here's what John says. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So interesting. John doesn't tell him who to vote for. He tells them, if you have two shirts, give one of them to somebody who doesn't have a shirt. There's all kinds of room for Christians to debate and discuss the role of government in pursuing justice. And that stuff matters. It's important. But what matters even more is that followers of Jesus ought to be the first to pursue justice in our own lives. That's what John is calling his hearers to. My theological mentor, Gary Brashears, famously puts it like this. Doing justice is inconveniencing myself for the sake of the quote-unquote worthless person, especially the widow, orphan, immigrant, and poor. Injustice is keeping my stuff for my own comfort. 
Now, I don't think any of us actually wants to live in a world where somebody is forcing us to disadvantage ourselves. But the good news is, you don't have to. You can choose to disadvantage yourself for the sake of God's glory all on your own. You can choose to lay down your rights. You can choose to inconvenience yourself and to give up your comfort. You can choose to keep only what you need and be generous with the rest. You are free to do all of that and nobody can stop you. So that's the vision. That's the metaphor. That when the kingdom of God shows up, the high places are cut down, the low places are filled in. Now what's the point of all this? What's the goal? Some sort of utopian society where there's no highs and lows and everybody's exactly the same? Those attempts haven't gone very well in human history. So that's not what this is about. What's the point? Well, Isaiah 40, verse 5, he tells us exactly what the point is. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. The point of disadvantaging ourselves for the sake of the other is that that's how we get to see God. That's what it's all about. The glory of God being revealed and all people seeing him together. If we fast forward in the story, this is what John 1 says happened at the very first Christmas. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The story of Christmas is that in Christ, God has disadvantaged himself, demoted himself, lowered himself, and as a result, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. So we live in a culture where all we want to do is move upward. It's interesting if you listen to it in our language What are the things that we want most in life? We want to be promoted. We want to get a raise. We want to climb the corporate ladder. Our idea of the good life is somewhere higher, somewhere above us. But if you're looking for God, that's not where you're going to find him. So here's the message of Advent. If you want to see God, don't look up. Look down. Look down. We all continue to mourn the violence and tragedy of the war in Israel and Gaza. And it's truly one of the most horrific events in our lifetimes, and it's hard to keep paying attention, hard to keep following the news partly because it just feels so hopeless, right? But the message of Christmas is that there's hope even in the midst of the worst tragedies. There's a church in the West Bank of Palestine called Christ Lutheran Church. It's in Bethlehem, the city where Jesus himself was born some 2,023 years ago. 
And like many churches, Christ Lutheran puts up a nativity display every year at Christmas. Well, here's what their display looks like this year. In the midst of the chaos, the violence, the loss, and the suffering. Look down, and you'll find Jesus in the rubble. The pastor of Christ Lutheran is a Palestinian Christian named Munther Isaac. And some journalists interviewed him about the nativity scene, basically wondering, with all the injustice and oppression that your people have endured, how can you still claim that God is with you? And Munther answered, looking down at this Christ child, God is with us in this pain. Christ was born in solidarity with those in pain and suffering. God is with the oppressed. I know that this is where some of you find yourselves this Advent season. With your own experiences of oppression, affliction, suffering from pain, and loss, desperate for comfort and hope, longing to see God. I know that. And the good news of Christmas is that if you're under the rubble, God wants to meet you there. The long-expected Jesus has come. Emmanuel has come. So if you want to see him, don't look up. Look down. Amen.